From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Everyone knows what it feels like to be stressed. We'll talk with a Mayo Clinic expert about how to manage stress and be resilient. Focus on what is controllable and important. Relationships, health, work, spirituality, things that are controllable but not important. My colleague slurping while drinking coffee, I can comment, <laughs> but any time the cost is more than benefit, you got to let it go. And something that is not controllable, whether it is important or not, you have to accept it. Also on the program, December 1st was World AIDS Day. We'll discuss improved treatment options for AIDS and the work towards a cure for HIV. And we'll have the latest data on teens and sleep. Just how much sleep does a teenager need? All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, everyone knows what it feels like to be stressed. In fact, the average person has 150 undone tasks at any given time. Now, it might be a leaky faucet or an unpaid bill or that project at work. In fact, our daily lives get in the way of our happiness. And stressful situation like the holidays, mm. and they're coming up, they can make <laughs> matters even worse. What can we do to manage our stress? Can we train ourselves to be happy? Can we learn resiliency? Here to discuss how to deal with stress is stress management and resiliency expert, Dr. Amit Sood. Dr. Sood is the author of the Mayo Clinic Handbook for Happiness. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sood. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Sometimes when uh, I have colleagues meeting me in the elevator and they ask me, how are you doing, my usual response is less than perfect, but better than expected. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. You know, Dr. Sood, I just thought of 151 things I need to do today, and I'm sort of stressed out. Help me. Sure. I think the first thing you can do if you have 150 and done tasks is to make a plan, because you can't, you can't really finish all of those. So research shows that even if you have not completed the task, but if you have made a plan, it occupies less space, space in your head. And then you're able to free up your sort of cognitive bandwidth to really fully engage with life. The second thing is, I think the list of tasks to do should not be longer than what can come on a small <laughs> post-it note. Oh if you have a, a, a long list, then things that are less important will crowd your day and will prevent you from doing the two most important things. The but, two most important and things at the top. Yes. Get those done. You're, you in, in all caps, bold, and you know, big font. <laughs> okay. I have to go back to the make a plan part because that's the first step. Are you saying? And then you made it into the post-it notes. So are you saying make a plan, being that you write it down? Is that how you make a plan, or is this something that you do just? Mentally. Oh, well, typically with something tangible. So typically what I do is say if I have to work on a project, I'll, I'll note it on my calendar three days from now. And I really don't feel like doing it right mm-hmm. now because it's sort of boring. Then I note it on my calendar three days from now, give myself half an hour or something like that. Uh, if, uh, uh, if there's something I really need to do tomorrow morning and I'm worried I'll forget, I put it in my wallet because I know I'm going to carry my wallet. Mm. So, uh, or send an email to myself. So that way when you're sleeping at night, night, you, you do not have all these open files preventing you from getting into a deep sleep. You know, you have two books out now. One, the Mayo Clinic Handbook for Happiness, and of course the one you wrote, I think previously, Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living. Which one's better? 
Which one do I buy first? <laughs> oh, uh, it, it depends. If if you are looking for a light uh, sort of weekend, uh, one or two day, you want to just, uh, you know, get it over with and not be stressed. You've not read the book, then the guidebook for happiness will be uh, uh, good. Uh, I think if you really want to get into a little bit of depth of the science, the neuroscience, the evolutionary biology and, and, and more stories than stress we're living. My, my personal favorite, I mean, it's like two kids, you know, <laughs> but my personal favorite is the stress living book. Well, when it comes to um, switching off the mind or closing some of those, I remember once you described it as the 150 open files going all the way across the top of your computer. When I started to imagine 150 files and then imagined clicking some of them closed, that was really helpful for me. Exactly. See, they will never be done. Uh, so there won't be a day when all your, you know, all the open files are closed and you can completely relax. That day is not coming anytime soon. So sometimes people say, so what to do with emails? And um, I, I read this very interesting perspective and it said, um, you know, you just died and two minutes later an email comes that, uh, that needs an urgent response. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> <laughs> so that's how, so, so we really need to prioritize and sometimes we do this two by two grid where focus on what is controllable and important. You know, relationships, uh, health, work, you know, spirituality, but things that are controllable but not important. Uh, you know, if I find my, uh, my colleagues slurping while drinking coffee. It's controllable, I can comment, but it's going to cost me more, cost my relationship. So anytime the cost is more than benefit, you've got to let it go. And something that is not controllable, whether it is important or not, you have to accept it. So uh, all of us have had instances during the day, whether we're at work or at, at home, where you, you just sort of get stressed out. You get that email or that extra patient or that bad news or whatever. What are some techniques that you can use right now uh, to help you relax? See, if you're in the throes of an acute stress response, you're a little bit behind the curve because when you have too much adrenaline coursing your, through your system and your brain is sort of suffused with norepinephrine, when your heart is beating at 120 beats per minute, you can't think straight and you're not even listening or, or hearing to what others are saying. A few ideas that might help. So you, you, you want to prevent that from happening and have a preemptive plan. Uh, but a few ideas if you're in the throes of it is pause, take a deep breath, distance yourself from that situation and try to reframe with a different perspective. Maybe is particularly if you're trying to blame somebody that, oh, this is coming because of this person's mistake, then you're going to get even more angry. See if you can be grateful for what is right within what is wrong. Like uh, our three-year-old was very sick with a bacterial infection. We were very worried. This was our third infection, and we came out. uh, We were very stressed out, and we said, you know what? Thank God for antibiotics. Thank God for Mayo Clinic. Thank God for all the wonderful physicians we had. So suddenly our stress converted to hope that, you, you know, hopefully this will not happen again, but if it does, we have a plan. So uh, so you want to have a plan ahead of time, but if you're in the throes of it, get all that non-epinephrine adrenaline out of your system by taking a few deep breaths, distancing yourself, and thinking from a new perspective. And if you must shout, go upstairs, shout into a pillow. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that you're talking about, daily life, you know, whether it's something that's happening at work or at home, as we head into the holidays, 
um, everybody survived Thanksgiving, but now they're thinking, I'm going to get together for my yearly gathering with all of my relatives or whatever the situation might be. Are there any special, it's kind of the same thing, but any special ways that we can, any tricks that we can use on ourselves as we head into the holidays? Uh, absolutely. So, so recognize that holidays are about relaxation and relationships. It's not about being very ambitious or packing too much. Now, what you're going to, what is going to happen is you'll, you'll meet all these wonderful people you have not met for a year or two years. So you've <laughs> forgotten their quirks and that, they, that you are borderline allergic to them. That's a so, great way to put it. Yes. Sometimes <laughs> I see people who, who make me annoyed. I just see I'm just allergic to them and I, 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 take the Benadryl of <laughs> compassion and I take the the EpiPen of forgiveness. So uh, the way I approach this is first plan that if, you know, Aunt Sarah is going to come and if she says, what am I going to do? What will be my reaction? Uh, I, I often use uh, preemptive forgiveness. So I actually, even before meeting uh, Uncle Todd, I might give him three tickets of forgiveness. Okay, he's going to, the first three times he annoys me, I've already forgiven him before meeting him. The preemptive forgiveness. Yes. Good. And send them home early. That's the other key to the hope. Dr. Ahmed Sood, who is author of the Mayo Clinic Handbook for Happiness and the Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living. Time for a short break. Myth or matter of fact, stress can cause cancer and other health problems. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is Dr. Ahmed Sood. He's a stress expert, relaxation expert, and also author of two wonderful books, The Mayo Clinic Handbook for Happiness and The Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living. You know, those books might make wonderful Christmas gifts. Oh, they I'm would. just saying. Are they that good? They are that good. <laughs> they are that good. Let's say myth or matter of fact, uh, stress can cause cancer and other health problems. Is that a myth or is that a fact? I would say it is a fact. Uh, so stress we know predisposes to a lot of uh, conditions that cause cancer, like people who are smoking are not able to quit when they are stressed. Uh, stress leads to emotional eating, which leads to weight gain. When you are stressed, when you fall off the wellness bandwagon, you stop exercising. So um, in fact, most of the risk factors for cancer are closely related to stress, so we know that uh, stress can increase your risk of cancer, and we also know that we know for sure is that stress can increase your risk of cancer progression and cancer recurrence. You know, Dr. Sue uh, did a TED Talk. Dr. Shives, did you know that? I did not. I, yes. had, I haven't seen that one. I've yeah. seen a few TED Talks. Did a so TED Talk, and I thought of you recently, Dr. Sood, when I watched a TED Talk that had to do with the idea of using stress to your benefit instead of looking at it as a negative. But can you use stress to your advantage? To a limit. Uh, you know, stress is a bit like spices. You, you, you need some spices in your food. Uh, so vacation is a good stress. Mm -hmm. uh, but vacation is not just about, you know, relaxing on beaches. It is also about, you know, diaper change at 36,000 feet and, and lost wallets and uh, mountain of emails that accumulate. So, But that is still a good stress. Promotion is good stress. So you need good stress. But bad stress is when you have to pack 10 pounds of sand and 3 pounds sand back day after day after day. Uh, and that that you 
don't want. And there are times when the stress is ugly, like, uh, you know, being diagnosed with a serious condition that came out of blue. So, so we want to have good stress. It is like friction. It makes life, life happen. We want to convert bad stress into good stress by, by avoiding demand resource imbalance. And we want to be prepared for ugly stress. You know, I, I did listen to one TED Talk, I think, on stress, and it said, make stress your friend. <laughs> you know, stress and I have not become friends yet, despite it's, the fact that I listened to that talk. It's a, it's a good thing to say, uh, but when you are in the throes of it, uh, particularly when bad things are happening around you, you know, to people who you really care about, it is very difficult to make stress your friend. I know you've got these techniques, and you use all these great words, uh, and and I know they work. And if you follow them and read your books and and they're wonderful. But I want to ask you about there are still a lot of people out there on medications. for Anxiety is one of the most common mental illnesses there is. And when I was, uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, Valium was the most commonly prescribed medication in this country. I think it's now anti-cholesterol medication. But there are still a lot of people out there on anti-anxiety medications. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that there are other ways, to better ways to handle this? Well, we shouldn't take a us versus they attitude. So there is what I believe a three-strike hypothesis. People who have significant mental health issue, they usually have a genetic predisposition, which is pure biology. They had difficult childhood of some kind. Either they were abused, had poor role models, etc. And then something happens in adult life, which just throws them off the off the curve. So uh, when people are having, say, acute recurrent panic attacks, have severe depression, have hallucinations, things like that, Absolutely, you need medications to help them. But medications alone should not be the answer. I think we should combine medications with some of these resilience techniques to make us stronger and hope that eventually we won't need the medications. Yeah, so let's move into talking about resiliency. Absolutely. So what we have realized is that uh, while there is demand resource imbalance, we have 150 undone tasks, right? I mean, so corporates and, and, and consumers both are thinking, can we decrease? Decrease the load on us, but decreasing the load is not that easy. Uh, what am I going to give up? It's, it is probably easier and more effective to increase your capacity to lift that load. And that is what is resilient. Uh, re- resilience. Re- resilience is your ability to lift the load of life. It's your core energy. It is your ability to withstand adversity, bounce back adversity from adversity and preempt and grow from adversity. So uh, a lot of research has happened in the last two decades, which has shown that we can significantly enhance our resilience. I've always thought of resiliency as a byproduct of going through tough times in life. Yeah, you know, uh, I think transformation through disruption. But the question is, who is not going through rough time in life? Uh, when I turn on the TV and look at headline news and see what's happening in the world or even nationally, uh, when I'm seeing somebody else hurting, actually my brain starts hurting. That is what science shows. If I see you in pain, I actually experience pain in my own pain network. So almost all of us are going through tough times in one or the other way. So I think all of us can be helped by being a little bit more resilient. A couple of other terms that you use that I'd like you to expand on are acceptance and, and forgiveness. 
Tell us about those and, and, and what your, uh, why you use those terms and how we should use them. So acceptance, sure. Uh, acceptance is forward-looking. Acceptance is saying, uh, you know, now that I've got this situation, am I going to keep fighting myself and, and going down the quicksand or am I going to look forward and come out of it? So acceptance saves you that energy. Uh, acceptance, So and what happens is when we are together, for example, in a relationship, we start taking each other for granted. Honey, I love you, but now please change. Right? <laughs> I don't know if you... So that is not acceptance. Acceptance is recognizing our own quirks and other person's quirks and accept, accepting them for, for what they are. And that's, that's what helps you save the energy to grow. Forgiveness is so important. Uh, we all... I mean, I'm sure I commit one... I goof up every single day, you know, and weekly I do something which I should not be doing. And if, if I didn't, if you didn't forgive me, if my wife didn't forgive me, if my kids didn't forgive me, life will become very difficult. If you For, forgive yourself. Exactly. And forgiving yourself, that is, that is very, very important. So forgiveness is not condoning, just justifying, denying. Forgive is, forgiving is for yourself. Uh, you do not forgive because uh, sometimes others deserve your forgiveness. You forgive because you want to decrease your own risk of heart attack, stroke, and dementia. So you're forgiving for yourself more than anything else. In, in our program, uh, the Stress-Free Living Program, Mayo Clinic Resilience Program, we forgive only on Fridays. So you, you, you only have to forgive on Fridays, and that makes life easier. <laughs> so tell us about that program. Uh, how do you uh, get into it, and wh- uh, how long does it last? So Not on Fridays, though, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that program, which we call Mayo Clinic Resilience, is taught uh, at Mayo. Uh, we've done over 20 research studies. You can learn the entire program in about two hours. Uh, it is a gist of the Mayo Clinic Guide to stress Living and Mayo Clinic Handbook for Happiness. Uh, we teach it uh, in clinical practice to patients. Every Wednesday we teach it as workshop, and we go all over the world now, and people come from all over the world to train in this program. We reach about 50,000 people a year with it. Wow. And as a parting shot here, give us the three parts, the three-part steps of the stress management and resiliency program. Sure. So the first part is awareness. You become aware of what neural vulnerabilities we have. Why do we get stressed? And from an evolutionary perspective, it's a very validating model, so awareness. The second part is attention. What part of my experience am I attending to? Do I attend to the fact that you load dishwasher like a garbage can, or do I attend to the reality that you are loading the dishwasher? So so attention, and where you attend, what you attend becomes your reality. And part three is your attitude. What kind of mindset do you carry? Do you, do you carry courage, hope, inspiration, can-do attitude, or are you negative all the time? So, so those are the three core parts, and we found that their integration leads to phenomenal rise in resilience. Dr. Ahmed Sood, stress expert, resiliency expert. So good to have you with us. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy holidays. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss work towards an HIV cure as we recognize World AIDS Day. And later on in the show, how much sleep does a teenager need? We'll have the latest data. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or maybe a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
breast cancer. One in eight women will develop it in her lifetime. Now, many women have dense breasts, and a new screening technology developed at Mayo Clinic may help detect more cancers in this group of women. It's called MBI. MBI stands for Molecular Breast Imaging, which is a relatively new tool for imaging the breast that was designed to overcome the limitations of mammography in women with dense breasts. Dr. Deborah Rhodes says the problem is that breast cancers and dense breast tissue both look white on mammograms, so it's possible that a tumor could be missed. During an MBI screening test, patients receive an injection of a tracer, which is taken up by cancerous tumors. Tumors stand out from the background tissue. Up to half of all women have dense breast tissue, and in two large studies, MBI identified three to four times more cancers than mammography in women with dense breasts. If we can reliably find most tumors at an early stage, we might be able to significantly impact the death rate from breast cancer. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Acquired immunodeficiency virus, also known as AIDS. It's a, it's a chronic, life-threatening disease caused by the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV. And by damaging your body's immune system, HIV interferes with your ability to fight the organisms that cause it. You know, it messes up your immune system. It's a pretty smart virus, actually. According to the Centers for Disease Control, 37 million people are living with HIV worldwide. World AIDS Day is observed each year on December 1st. Here to discuss World AIDS Day and the potential for an HIV cure is infectious disease specialist Dr. Andrew Badley. Welcome to the program, Dr. Badley. Thank you. Good morning. Dr. Badley, good to have you with us. I like that word, cure, and we'll ask him about that in a little while. But 37 million people worldwide that uh, have HIV or AIDS seems like a large number, but What's the difference between having HIV and having AIDS? The difference between having HIV means that the virus is in your body and it may or may not yet have done damage. By the time that your immune system is sufficiently impaired that you reach an arbitrary threshold of 200 CD4 T cells, that's when we call it AIDS. Yeah. 200 what did you say? CD4 T cells, which are the... And you can measure that in the blood? We can measure that in the blood and that's easily measured around the world in, in many labs. The other definition of AIDS is when you have a serious complication of, of HIV infection, such as nasty infections or nasty cancers. So if you can determine that someone is a carrier, has the HIV virus in their body, and you treat them, can you prevent them from getting the complications, getting AIDS? Absolutely. And more importantly, you can reverse them from having the complications and reverse them from having a very low CD4 count and, in many cases, cure their infections and cancers. When you say they're cancers, one of the complications is cancer? Yes. Many of the cancers that anybody gets um, can be linked to chronic viral infections. Classic examples are cervical cancer and human papillomavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other cancers, for example, nasopharyngeal carcinoma can be caused by another virus called EBV. Nose and throat. Correct. Okay. And uh, in HIV-infected patients who have weakened immune systems, they can get these infection-associated cancers at a much higher rate. How do you find out if someone has uh, HIV? before they develop symptoms? Simple blood test. 
And who who would you suspect? I mean, well, so, Tracy's never had that test, nor have I. So <laughs> that that's a very politically charged question and no, a very important question. And if listeners take one thing home from today's discussion, it would be this, that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, has recommended that every American be tested for HIV at least once. Is that right? Absolutely. So years ago, it used to be, you come in sick, and that's when you suspect HIV, and you should have your test. Now they're recommending that everybody have the test, and, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that you make that patient better by diagnosing it earlier and mm -hmm. starting treatment earlier and preventing complications. But another is a public health implication. The ability to transmit the virus from one person to another person is highest when you have untreated HIV. When you treat that HIV and reduce the amount of virus in your body, not to zero, but reduce it, uh, the likelihood of transmitting virus is reduced proportionately. How does it spread? Many different ways, but the predominant ones are through blood contact or sexual transmission. In the mid-80s, people were just terrified. So I know that's one of the things that have changed over these 30 years, almost 30 years, but what else has changed? Oh, a lot has changed. So I remember seeing my first HIV-infected patients as a medical student in 1984. And you're right, there was absolute hysteria. Going into that room, everybody was gowned and gloved, and <laughs> the cafeteria tray that, that went into that room was autoclaved before it came out. And that's because we really didn't know anything. Now we know how to diagnose it, how to diagnose it at very, very early stages, even before your immune system recognizes it. We have 20 or 30 different drugs that treat HIV. Uh, many of them you can take once a day, so it's pretty easy. Many of them are co-formulated, which means you have two or three active drugs together in one pill. If someone today has, has AIDS, develops uh, symptoms from the HIV virus, and you treat them, do those patients still die? Rarely. Rarely. Really? And what did they used to die of? They used to die of two things. One is the infections or cancers that come along with advanced HIV infection or AIDS. The other thing that they used to die of is low-grade fevers and chills and sweats, and, and that condition was called HIV-wasting syndrome. And people would actually die of uncontrolled HIV infection or HIV-wasting syndrome. Today, that doesn't happen if you have access to therapy and you can afford therapy and you take therapy, and, and it's important that there's three steps mm -hmm. there. All right, World's Aid Day, what's the big message you want to get out? HIV needs to be diagnosed better, so we transmit it less. There are effective therapies for HIV that in North America, thankfully, everyone can gain access to. The therapies for HIV are insufficiently available around the world. If we could get them into the developing countries and the resource-limited settings, we'd do a lot to stem the, the spread of HIV. Treatment is prevention. If you start HIV treatment in a population, the number of new cases that you see goes down. And the last message is there are clear advances in understanding HIV so that we're now starting to talk about the possibility of HIV cure. So how close are we to an HIV cure? Uh, I can't give you a date, but okay. I can tell you what's going on. So there's one patient who has been cured of HIV. That patient's name is Timothy Ray Brown, and it's very interesting. So he was a gentleman with HIV infection who was treated with effective HIV drugs and developed a leukemia, so a blood cancer. He had a, a treatment for his blood cancer, and it didn't go away. He then had a bone marrow transplant, and the cancer didn't go away. He then had a second bone marrow transplant, and the cancer did go away. And throughout all this time, he was treated with his HIV medicines, and he started to recover. He had a few complications from the bone marrow transplant. And somebody said, why don't we look back and see if HIV is there? 
and it wasn't there. So they stopped his HIV medicines, and now, 10 years after his transplant, he still doesn't have HIV there. So that is a definition of a cure. Now, the question is, why was he cured, and why doesn't bone marrow transplant cure everybody with HIV? When you need a bone marrow transplant, you go to a bone marrow registry, and you say, who's a good donor? In his particular case, they found a handful of donors, and one of those donors had a naturally occurring mutation in a protein called CCR5. And that protein is a necessary protein for HIV to enter the cell. That naturally occurring mutation impairs the ability for HIV to enter the cell. So his doctor said, since we have five or so good candidates, let's pick the donor who has that mutation. And it is probable that him being transplanted with that donor's cells was mechanistically responsible for him clearing the virus. So what do we do with that information? So several things. One is many groups have tried bone marrow transplant without CCR5 uh, mutations, bone marrow transplant with CCR5 mutations, and the summary of that data is if you do the bone marrow transplant without CCR5, you don't cure patients, but you can reduce HIV levels a lot so that you can't see it a lot until you stop H, uh, stop the HIV medicines and it rebounds. So that's one thing you can do with it. Another thing you can do with that information is do a gene therapy approach where you manipulate the genes within a cell so that those cells don't express CCR5. You manipulate them to mutate that receptor and then put them back in that patient. Those cells should be resistant to HIV. And so people have done that. And the cells that have the mutation in that receptor live longer and don't become infected. The, the challenge now is how do you replace all of that person's cells with those HIV-resistant cells? Well, pretty interesting. We like good stories like that. <laughs> Every once in a while, we hit the mark, don't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. More often than not, actually. Infectious disease specialist and AIDS expert, Dr. Andrew Badley. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear the recent findings of a study on teens and sleep. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you have a teenager in your house, you know that sleep was probably one of the issues that you and your youngster sometimes, well, discuss. Whether it's part-time job or sports or extracurricular activities, homework, or maybe just texting time, many <laughs> teens stay up late, get up early, and don't get adequate sleep. Well, here to talk about a new study of teenagers and sleep is Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler. Dr. Morgenthaler is a sleep medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Morgenthaler. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, how are you studying these teens? What are you doing to them? Right. So I'm uh, privileged to serve with a group from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the Sleep Research Society and the CDC in a cooperative effort where we are trying to evaluate uh, by reviewing the available literature what is actually the effect of changing school start times to a later time. You know, as you know, I mean, insufficient sleep is common amongst high school students, and we know that this is not just an inconvenience that there, you know, actually has been quite a lot of evidence showing that there's increased risks of motor vehicular uh, crashes, increased sports injuries, increased occupational injuries in their after-school jobs and summer jobs. The studies show that probably 35% get less than or equal to six hours of sleep on school nights, which doesn't sound like a very good idea. Actually, even if we go up to seven hours, probably as many as 65% of students of our 
high school students on school nights are getting less than or equal to seven hours. And, you know, for, for fully developed adults not in school, we're supposed to get more than seven hours. And uh, although the consensus study hasn't come out from the CDC AASM effort, it's likely going to be um, based on some other consensus studies that high school students probably need something closer to eight or nine hours to actually feel adequately rested. What is it about their brain? It's still developing, or why does their brain need more sleep than my brain or his brain? I think that's a good way to, to look at it, that, that you know, the high school brain is still uh, developing. You know, as you know, there's a lot of neural connections still being made, and, you know, I, I don't know that I can – uh, profess to be an expert in neurosciences, but there's no question that the uh, amount of sleep required over time changes. And, you know, how we determine what the right amount of sleep is depends upon things like what is the association with diseases, crashes, performance in mental and athletics and so forth, and, you know, where does that start to fall off? And it looks like for high school students, it's probably something closer to eight or nine hours. Now, I'll, I'll wait for that, you know, data to come out fully, but it's it certainly isn't less than six hours, which is what a third of our students are doing. And now, so why is this? Well, we know that the adolescent has a tendency at that particular time in their biological clock for their internal clock to sort of shift a little later. They have a preference to go to bed later and wake up later. That over time will shift back again to be a little bit more like adults. But during this time, what are we asking them to do? We're asking them to show up for schools that are starting frequently earlier than 7.30 in the morning and many times to catch buses at 6.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. So we're putting them in the classroom and asking them to shine when their brain is telling them, no, please let's sleep. And so there's a lot of concerns that not only does that produce this restricted sleep, but it may actually be impairing their ability to learn and things like that. I suspect that I'm going to be listening to this with my daughter and uh, the word you used preference. They have a preference for staying up later. What do you mean by the word preference? Right. So what I mean is if we (laughs) took away from them all of their uh, iPhones and uh, media and put them in a very boring cave with unregulated light, but basically when their body would say to go to sleep is uh, about an hour and a half later than when your body tells Mm -hmm. you to go to sleep in the same circumstance. Hmm. And similarly, they would then sleep probably closer to eight or nine hours and wake up therefore later than you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on top of that, we add to that biological delay now a lot of new gizmos and and reasons for them to stay up. We we pile homework on them. They have more homework now than they did when you and I went to school. And they have uh, electronic media that they bring into their room that keeps them connected and active much longer than I think is healthy. What I don't understand is if they're forced to get up at 6.30 day after day after day, wouldn't they be more tired and tend to go to bed earlier at night, or it just doesn't work that way? No, that's a very reasonable question, and I think that's what you know people have been supposing to be the case. But what actually happens is there's a, a trade-off made between when does their biological clock say to go to sleep and the sleepiness. And so they really mm-hmm. end up settling between that and whatever behaviors they pull into it, like you know, uh, iPads or whatever, that they end up settling for a a bedtime that's really too late to get enough sleep if they have to get up at a certain hour in the morning. So I assume that uh, based on this article, you may be an advocate for starting school a little later for teenagers? Right. So about two or three years ago, the American Pediatric Association went ahead and said, gee, we think schools should not start any earlier than 830 in the morning. And what we really wanted to find out was, 
Well, that certainly seems reasonable. And in fact, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine endorsed that, as have many physicians. But we wanted to find out a little bit more about, well, what's the scientific evidence behind that? Mm-hmm. And so we've done a comprehensive review using meta-analysis and so forth. And we have some findings. And that's really going to be the major findings of the study. What do the findings show us? So what they show, first of all, there's basically two categories of these studies that are available. One of them look at very small adjustments in school start time, maybe just delaying school start time by less than 60 minutes. And the other is by greater than 60 minutes. So the first question is, well, if we advance the school start time, do they actually get more sleep or do they just stay up later? Mm -hmm. And the answer is no, they do get more sleep. If you make school start even less than 60 minutes later than what is the usual habit, they get on average about 20 to 25 minutes more sleep. If you actually extend school time to 60 minutes or more later, they actually get closer to 53 minutes on average more sleep. And that's pretty valuable because that'll really move the percentages from those who are getting less than six hours to more like seven hours of sleep. If you look at things like vehicular crashes, there's pretty good evidence that later start times will improve the vehicular accidents. And there does seem to be pretty good evidence as there's decreased, and this is maybe kind of a no-brainer, there's decreased tardiness and not showing for first periods if you extend the school start time. What's a little less clear is that there does not seem to be a a clear-cut improvement in academic performance, at least as measured by grade point averages and so forth. There's some studies that say maybe, but that's not as clear. And and then there's some other studies that have been looking at more behaviors. And the two things that can be said there is, on the one side, uh, there was an enormous study done uh, in Fairfax County, Virginia, over 27,000 students. Interestingly, in in that study, what they looked at was not delaying school start times, but actually a change going earlier in school start times that just had to do with the transition between one grade and another. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that that one hour in change actually increased the likelihood that students would complain of being depressed, feelings of hopelessness, serious consideration of suicide, actual suicide attempts, and uh, risk of substance abuse. That's been, that kind of view has been corroborated by a CDC study that was just released two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, The CDC study showed that if you divide students into those who are getting less than six hours and those that are getting more eight, nine hours, that not only are there these increased risks of like vehicular accidents, but if you look at risky behaviors, rate of seatbelt usage, rate of riding with a drinking driver, rate of drinking and driving, rate of not using a helmet when on a bicycle, or texting while driving, all go up dramatically with a decreased sleep time at night. Now, we, I don't know that we can say those are causal. Is that describing a, a group of behaviors? But I think the data all taken together certainly suggest that we should do what we can to get adequate sleep in our youth. It only makes sense. You can't really learn and perform well if you're horribly sleep-restricted. And from a public safety point of view, it really looks like it might be a good idea. Just being healthier in general. Yeah. It seems like you're on to something here, Dr. Morgenthaler. I just don't know how easy it's going to be to change the kids' school schedule. That's part of why I was interested in doing the study, because if you're going to ask for this kind of change, which obviously has many implications for after-school activities, uh, parent job schedules, all kinds Mm -hmm. of things like this, I think we ought to be absolutely certain that we really are gaining the gains that we thought we were going to get. And what I will tell you is there is a very active movement, you know, rolling across the country where more and more communities are moving their school start times. And many of the concerns that I think you're implying here and that I've certainly have shared are proving to not be big issues. Uh, They actually show that there is no decrease in extracurricular activities, that the community at large can approach this. But it does have to be approached as a community. You're absolutely right, because they're interlinked. So it's not simple 
but it's not impossible. And it has been done and is being done with more frequency. Oh, I didn't realize that, but people can adapt, even mom and dad. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler, sleep specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.